worship this morning comes from Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by name. You are mine. Let's pray. Father God, as we stand here this morning, we stand here and we come to worship you, our creator, the one who formed us, who not only formed us as image bearers, broken as we are, but has redeemed us. And we stand this side of the cross being able to rejoice that we've been redeemed not by the blood of sheep and goats that has to be re-sacrificed year after year after year, but by one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died once for all, whose blood was shed once and was sufficient to cast all sins, past, present, and future, for those who believe as far as the east is from the the west. So we rejoice this morning, Father, that we see Christ and we can know Him, know that You love us and that You have redeemed us and that we are in fact yours we ask you to come and meet with us this morning as we worship you it's in jesus name we pray amen all right let's stand together as we always do we'll sing appreciate you appreciate you being here I know we're still a mixed group with some uh, nervous about COVID, some, uh, some not as nervous, but we're still um, risking to some degree being here together and enjoying worshiping as a body. So that means a lot to Austin and I, so to be with you. So anyway, let's worship together.
Thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. Lord, we're thankful for all the trappings that come with your love, mercy, and grace. Lord, how the mechanics of that works out in our life. Lord, that there's more to you than generalities, than general statements that we make, Lord. That you are beautiful, you are lofty, you are complex, but you're knowable. And it's our privilege to know you. So, Lord, we, 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 we offer you thanks now for your knowability. We offer you thanks that to a degree we can understand you and to a degree we can know you. And we celebrate the fact that for all eternity, we'll, I believe that we'll be growing in our knowledge of you because you're infinite in all ways and in all things. Lord, I pray now as we enter into a time where we minister to the young minds and hearts of these children, Lord, that they would be able to grasp the grandeur to a degree of who you are in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about being made in the image of God, right? Okay, that God's created us. We're made in his image. Okay, and as, as image bearers, that's a big responsibility. That's a big privilege. Okay, we have worth and we have value because we're the only creatures that God's made that are made in his image. Okay, we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. But you, if you remember, I've also mentioned that that image was what? It was broken. Okay, just like a mirror that's cracked or a mirror that's real foggy, it doesn't represent it's, it doesn't represent the image it's supposed to well at all. Sometimes not even at all. Okay, so well, let's talk about that this morning. Where did where did sin come from? That's what we're talking about. The sin broke that image. All right, caused it to be broken. So where did that come from? You remember in Genesis, right? God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things, okay? Living, all the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, all the animals, all the birds, mountains. He did all of these things, the galaxies. And then he created man in his own image. He, he made Adam out of the dust of the earth. Okay, and he put Adam to work, right? He said, go in the garden, cultivate it, name all the animals. And Adam named all the animals. Do you know what he discovered? There is no companion for me. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no companion for me. There's no one like me here. And God said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. So he put Adam to sleep, right? Caused him to go into sleep. And he took a rib out of Adam's side. And he made Eve a helpmate for him, a companion. And he said, it's good now. And Adam rejoiced over that. So Adam and Eve were in the garden, right? And do you remember what happened? In, in Genesis chapter 3, there was a, there's a garden and God told them, gave them one instruction, right? He said, you can eat from any of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but what? What, Calvin? The what? Right, right. He said, but this tree, he said, there's one tree, this one right here, don't eat from it. Okay, we usually see it as an apple, don't know that it was an apple, okay? But in a lot of picture books, that's what it's shown as, okay? But there was a fruit on that tree, and God said, don't eat from that. 
right? Because in the day that you eat from it, what happens? Okay, you leave the garden. But more specifically, God said what, Addie Grace? Okay, sin comes in the world. You will die. He said you'll die. Okay, so he said don't eat from it. Okay? Now, was God being stingy or was God being generous? He said you can eat from any of the trees except that one right there. Was God stingy or was he being generous? What? Generous. He's being generous. That's like, you know, your parents saying, look, you can eat any of the food in the house except what's in this jar. Okay? Broccoli, right? It might be poison. Yeah, it might be dangerous. Okay? All right, but that's pretty, that's pretty generous, right? Okay, well, then the serpent comes in. Okay, the one who represents Satan. The serpent comes in and he tempts Eve. Right? And yeah, you know what he you know what he says? He said, Did God really say that you can't eat from that tree? Did he really say that that that, that you'll die? You know what? God's holding out on you. Because God knows that in the day that you eat from that tree, the fruit of that tree, you will become like him. Do you see what the serpent did? He's very crafty. He tricked him, right? He, he told a half-truth. You know what a half-truth is? It's where there's a bit of that that's true, but there's a bit of it that's also very false, right? Because what did God tell them? Yes, you will die. And it was true that they would, in a sense, become like God, knowing good and evil. But see, God was the source of good and evil. His image bears us. We were never designed to be that source. And so that's what happened is that Adam and Eve ate from that fruit. Their eyes were opened to good and evil, but what they realized is that they had sinned. They had disobeyed their creator, right? They, they believed for a moment that God was holding out on them, that they knew better than God what was good. And so sin comes into the world, and they become ashamed of themselves, Right? You know what? They, they, look at, they look at each other and go, I'm not safe in your presence. I'm not, I'm not safe. I can't trust you anymore. Okay? And so we can learn something from this. Right? That this is what sin does. Sin works by deceiving us and tricking us into doubting the things that are true and believing the things that are false. Namely, that one, God is not good. And that his commands and instructions for us are also not good. Isn't that what Adam and Eve, that's what they doubted, right? God's not good. He's holding out on us. Well, God's instructions aren't, aren't good for us. There's something good in that tree, in that fruit, that I've got to have. And I don't believe that it's bad for me. When it turned out to be very bad for them, didn't it? Right? It did. Yeah. So we can learn that. Okay, you know what else we can learn? Um is that sin, the way sin works, is sin's li- it's lived out by turning away from the things that God has given to us, his instructions, in order to do what we think is best. Okay, it's important that we always remember God, because he's created us, because he's fashioned us in his image. Okay, he knows our hearts, he knows the inner workings of our bodies and other people better than anyone else. And he can be trusted to give us guidance in how we are to live. And so we should always seek to trust what he's told us to do. Okay? And that also, sin always leads to ruin and harm and death. That's what we see with Adam and Eve. Right? Did they die the minute that they ate from that fruit? 
No, but their bodies started that process of dying. And they were separated from God. Because what did God tell them? Told them not to eat the fruit, but what then what did he tell them after they what, what was their punishment? Do you remember? Addie Grace? Right. Sin will come into the world and they'll die. Where what did they have to do? Could they stay in the garden? No. He said, This is no longer this is no longer your home. He said, You have to leave. And in leaving the garden, they also had to leave God's presence, right? Because what did God do every day? Do you remember what God did with Adam and Eve? The Bible says that God walked with Adam and Eve. They had close relationship. Just like, how many of you ever gone on a walk with your family? Yeah, you go on a walk, right? And you hang out together and you spend time together. Isn't that cool? God would do that with Adam and Eve. But once sin came into the world, that relationship was broken and he no longer did that anymore. Okay? So this is how sin entered the world. This is how you being made in the image of God... This is how that image was broken because sin came into the world. Now, a question that comes out of this, and this is what we'll get into next week, is, well, I wasn't with Adam and Eve. How is it that my image is broken? Now, we'll get into that next week, is how that sin spreads to all people. All right? But this morning, the important thing is that you remember, here's how sin came into the world. Right? started with Adam and Eve, the first two people. Because they distrusted God, that God was good and that his commands were good. And they decided to follow their own ways. And that led into brokenness. It led sin into the world. Right? And it destroyed their relationship with God. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening this morning. I hope this is encouraging. I hope it helps you see who you are and who God is a little clearer. So let me pray for us and you guys can go sit back down. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you have chosen to write down and record for us history of how we were created in your image and the glory that that is and the privilege and the responsibility it is but also the depths of brokenness that came because our first parents distrusted you father may we learn from that may we see our need for jesus that only he can restore that image and make things right again I pray for these young little minds that father they would see their own sin, that they would recognize it, they would be feel free to talk to their parents about it as well. And that, Father, you would bring clarity to the gospel in their hearts and that see, let them see their need for Jesus. For only he can restore that image. It's in Christ's precious name that I pray. Amen. Such praises and what.
turn in your copy of the scriptures to John 17. John 17 will continue in Christ's high priest, high priestly prayer. So what I want to do with this today is I want to highlight just a small section before moving on to a, a bigger section next week. So Jesus is entering into a time where he's our intercessor, right? Uh, the scripture tells us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. So there's a clear moment here in, in, in history, in this time in ministry of Jesus Christ, where he's instructed them, he said these things. Now Jesus prayed throughout his life, but this is where we start seeing intercessor, intercessory type language. So this is what Jesus is, is doing for us. More on that in just a minute. But uh, before I get started into this text, I want to thank Antoine again for coming up and faithfully sharing with us. Um, sharing faithfully, I guess, to avoid like, split infinitive or whatever that is. And Tina's not here to reprimand me for grammar, so I'll say what I want, right? So um, uh, thank you, Antoine. Fan, fantastic job. Uh, really well done. I appreciate that so much. It was a blessing to me and so many others I know as they contacted you and thanked you for those things. You know, uh, next time, use your belt. Just clip the clip the battery pack. You know, so he was standing here like this. You know, <laughs> you know. So, uh, uh, but those things are you. You kind of get up here and you you get tunnel vision. You don't know what else is going on. You probably didn't even realize your hand was over here, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a cradle for the, for the battery pack for a little while there. But, um, 
That was a that was a really good job. Thank you so much for for your faithfulness, Antoine, and for being willing to uh, to take on the responsibility, which is not light, to share with us God's word. So love you, man. Fantastic job there. So John chapter seventeen. I'm going to read verses six through twenty six just to give you a context. Okay. So next week we look at how Jesus prays for us as our intercessor. So you'll see some of that when we go in here, because that's it's, it's, it's really magnificent when you step back and think of the fact that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. This is not your grandmother praying for you. This is not your daddy or your mommy praying for you. This is God Almighty praying for you before the Father. So out of the gate, knowing that, that should create tremendous excitement within us because we not only have now, for those who believe, an advocate and an intercessor, but he ever lives to make intercession for you. So we'll get into that in just a minute. So let's read together. You don't have to read out loud, but follow me in chapter 17, starting in verse 6, moving down through verse 26. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, speaking to God the Father. You gave me out of the world, by the way. Don't let this language be lost on you. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. Remember, Jesus said, I've given you the words of life. I've, John said, these things have been written so that you might believe these things. What are these things? These words of life that Jesus has for people and that he gave through the disciples to others and that you and I have to give to others as well. And so he says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, verse 8, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. World being the, 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 the world system. Well, anybody that's not in Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm praying for them. Specifically right now, the disciples. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So you hear some of the ways that Jesus begins to pray for them. This oneness, this unity, this likeness that he's praying for the disciples, and by extension, he's praying for every believing individual that crosses the span of time. Verse 12, while... I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, the scripture, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's important. Again, next week. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, 
Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that they have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. In them and you in me, or I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, before I get into this, this is just a side note, but I think it's just important to mention in case I forget next week. You start seeing this oneness language. And then you can look at other scriptures and see how when the little leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see how sins of the few can affect the many. You start to see how this this, this language of the Scripture, this oneness language of the Scripture as it applies to the church as a whole. Now you can see how it's not really likely or possible that sin can creep into the camp and only affect you and not affect others around you because there is a unity and there is a oneness. And it just speaks to the, uh, the communal mandate. It, exp- it speaks to the communal expectation that the church should experience as ordained by God. So... Let me move forward. I have no idea where I was. So let's pick up in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So there's a mouthful, right? There's a lot to digest. Won't happen today, might not happen next week, but we'll get into that, and we're going to start to explore the, the, the efficacious nature or the effectiveness of Christ's prayers for us and how he prays for us very, very specifically. So we'll see that next week. So here's my objective for today. Here's my objective. Sometimes application is easier than other times. Today's not super simple, although I have some. But what I really aim for today is so that I want for the the beauty and the majesty and the renown of, of God, His mercies, His grace. I want you to see these things and I want those things to just wash over and encourage you. You know, sometimes we get up here and we say, hey, here's what you take and here's what you do with this. Sometimes there's some very easy, very direct application that the Scripture gives you. Jesus says, do this. He says, don't do this. He says, why? And we just communicate that. So it's, it's black and white. It's very easy. But sometimes the application comes in this way. You encounter a holy God and it just affects you. You encounter a holy God in His Scriptures And it just moves you, it shakes you, it humbles you, it breaks you down. It exposes you to yourself and to the recesses of your own heart and your own soul. And it brings about change. It doesn't necessarily have to be the pastor, preacher, teacher who stands up here and says, hey, this is how you should really be affected or this is how you should respond. The Holy Spirit's quite good at His job. And a part of His job is to bring about remembrance, bring about conviction, bring about change and all of these things. So today we're asking the Holy Spirit to just show us the beauty of God in His mercy, in His grace, and in all of these things, and for it to overwhelm you. That's my nutshell objective for you today. Okay? So having memorized that, we're going to move forward. Now today is the day after Reformation Day. So 
I'm going to take some liberties and delve a little bit into the doctrine of election today because I think that's where Jesus takes us. Now, let me go ahead and say this. I am fully aware. I'm fully aware that there might be some represented here among us today that may not fully subscribe to maybe even some of the things that I'm going to present, but trust and know that at least what I'm presenting is is how I'm seeing these things in the text. And I will, I, will, I will share how and why. I'll give you my rationale. And as always, as always, if there's anything that you take issue with or that you don't see as clearly as maybe I think I see, then let's have a conversation. And that is absolutely, absolutely fine. Uh, uh, I, I, I need to be taught in my life. Uh, and sometimes the Lord brings, well, all the time the Lord brings people uh, to, to, to show me. And he makes me more and more teachable uh, through interactions that I have with people that are looking at the same text and wrestling through the same thing. So, um, so bear with me. Let's move through this, but give me a little latitude because it is the day after Reformation Day. Okay, so, so here we go. I'm just seeing it in the text. I'm not creating these things. I don't just, I asked Sarah the other night, I was sitting outside, I said, Sarah, am I the kind of guy that just rings all the bells of Calvinism just because I can? She's like, no, no. I'm like, Tell me the truth. She goes, no, you're not. You deal with it from the text. So if you think I'm that guy, take it up with my wife because she says I'm not. And that's how that is. Okay. So, so here's the context. This is the coming. It's coming to a close. Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to a close. Um, and obviously he's given them the instructions while he was in the room with them during the supper and after Judas had betrayed him and all of those things happened. And Jesus is telling them about persecution that's coming. He's letting them know. He's preparing them. He's promised them the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter. And he says, this is why the Spirit's going to come, so that you will not fall away, so that you will not stumble. Why would you even stumble or fall away? Because persecution is real. It comes hard. It comes heavy. It comes fast. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. They're going to try to kill you, or they will kill you, in the name of their God. So there's all these things happening, and Jesus removes himself from their company. I don't know to what degree, but he begins to pray. Maybe they were sitting around, but his focus is directly on the Father, and he offers up this prayer, and he begins this moment of intercession. This text applies directly to the disciples. Okay, so he's mentioning the disciples. It's very clear to see that he's talking about the disciples because he mentions the 11. He said, I haven't lost any of them with the exception of the son of destruction, which was to fulfill the word, right? So we know that in one regard, he's speaking of the disciples. But that application extends because Jesus goes on in his prayer. And I just want to go ahead a little bit to include that in our context that Jesus is offering up prayers for all that would believe. He says this, for all that will believe. All of these people, I want to offer up these prayers. So it's kind of a both-and situation. Now, this is what's interesting about this context. And this this is just a, a, a free nugget for you that's really kind of cool. Just notice that the disciples are in this weird moment where, where they're in between two... I dare not say dispensation because I'm not a dispensationalist, but, but they're, in, they're, they're in between covenants. They're in this transition period where those before them and the disciples, for that matter, how I understand the scriptures, they're saved the same way you know, as the Old Testament saints, which New Testament saints are saved the same way. You know, but, but Old Testament saints before resurrection, before the giving of the Holy Spirit, didn't have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So these disciples experienced, like Abraham and like others, 
righteousness that comes through faith applied by the Spirit of God possible because of the future atoning work of Christ. Just like Isaiah said, by your stripes we are healed. A future perfect, you know, a future perfect tense, something in the future applied to the present at that time. So that's what's happening. But, but they are still going to be the recipients of the Holy Spirit. So it's this weird moment that only the disciples, only those apostles, they're the ones that really share in that. Okay, because they follow Jesus and trust Christ and I believe become Christian before his resurrection and before the spirit was uh, uh, imparted to them or applied to them as an indwelling. So it's a kind of an interesting way to look at this. This is definitely unique. So let's move through some things. And I said, I just want to camp out on a few little places. You know, this is you know, the aim is to be a little shorter today, so I really want to be concise and try to pack a big punch in just a few short things that really set the tone for the rest of the chapter, that really set the tone for the rest of the, of the section that we go through. Well, this chapter and the next one. So let's go back to the text. And let's start working through this. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people. I've manifested your name to the people. And my issue, my issue is when we read this, I think it's easy for us to kind of just pass through that and kind of miss the weight of what's happening when he says, oh, I've manifested your name to the people. This is one of the large themes in the scripture is first the deity of Christ and then Christ as the image of the invisible God. Christ representing, revealing, displaying the character, nature, attributes of God in his earthly life. You remember John's prologue, he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, I believe, says, and the Word became flesh. Now, I'm not expecting you to remember back to a year and a half ago or whatever it was when we taught through John's prologue, but if you do remember, you'll remember me talking about what a Word does and why the word Word was used to describe Jesus. The idea is that a word gives, a word basically provides a visual to an idea. It makes that which could be abstract more concrete. You're thinking of an elephant, but you're not telling anybody. But you're thinking of an elephant that has a tutu with a unicorn horn on its head, all right? You're thinking that, but you're not saying it out loud. Nobody in their right mind is going to think that exactly the same way that you're thinking it. We don't know what you're thinking until words are coming out and starting to paint that picture visually for us. In the same sense, Jesus, fully God, fully man, Jesus comes as the word to put on display that which is invisible, God because no man can see God and live Jesus is the image of the invisible God so what we have in Jesus is absolutely God but when we see the love of Jesus we see the love of God when we see the grace of Jesus we see the grace of God the patience and you list these attributes on and on and on and on and a part of Jesus pur purpose in being here was to put on display God God the Father. This is why he said to his disciples in John chapter 12, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Is it because they look the same? No, they are the same in person, right? Well, they're two, two different persons, but they're one God. They're unified. They're all of these things. But Jesus is the visible 
representation. Jesus is, as God, the, the, the visual that we have of God. That's how we know God is because of, is because of Jesus. So to manifest means to reveal or put, on, to, or put on display. The word name here means a being or attributes or, or character. It's all encompassing. So don't just think, oh, Yahweh. Oh, okay, that's just, it's just a name. No, it, that's a far oversimplification. Name is all-encompassing, his character, his attributes, everything. So Jesus came to reveal all that God is in the flesh. Hence, we go back to the prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Fullness of deity in bodily form, Colossians. So I've manifested your name. I've revealed to them, I've displayed to them, I've shown them who you are through myself in the flesh, through my actions, through my love, through my principles, through my wisdom, through my grace, mercy, through all of these things. They have seen you because they've seen me. So that's how Jesus starts out. And then he says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. This manifestation has an intended goal. It has an intended goal, and I would say that it also has an intended audience. So the intended goal of this manifestation is to reveal or put on display the person and the character of God the Father. But this manifestation has an intended audience as well. Note this, to whom has Jesus manifested the name of God the Father? Look at the text. Who are the recipients of this manifestation? And by the way, this manifestation is necessary for salvation, right? It has to be. It has to be. How can you trust, love, and follow a God that you know absolutely zero about, that you don't know at all? But we come to know him through his son. I mean, that's Christianity 101. That's what we're taught in VBS, right? That I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. This is what all this means, is we know and we see Jesus. Jeremiah says, let, let not a man boast in his riches or his wealth or his might, but let he who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands God. And God revealed himself in many ways in the Old Testament. But then we arrive at the New Testament. We arrive in the New Covenant, and it makes it very clear that now he's spoken to us through the Son, Hebrews 1. And the Son is the radiance of his glory, the image of the invisible God, the exact the exact representation of his nature, all of these things that the author of Hebrews tells us. So I think this has an intended audience, and that audience is, just as the Scripture says, to whom you gave me out of the world. And Jesus is speaking first of his disciples immediately. But that, that, that category expands to all who would believe, if you're looking in... Um, you know, if you're looking in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. So this expands to all who would follow Jesus. I think we all know that. I think we don't have a problem with that. We agree with that. And that's who this manifest manifestation has been intended for, to the ones that the Father has given Jesus. But with this audience, there's three truths that I want to, you to see very quickly, and that's it. So in this intended audience, those who would believe there are three truths. Truth number one that we need to cling to is only those whom the Father has given to the Son can see the manifestation of the Father in Jesus. So how do we explain the gospel being shared with many while only few believed? 
And we've used this illustration before. You're sitting on one side as person A. Another person is sitting on the other side as person B. And you've grown up together. You've done everything in life together. You've been exposed to the same sermons. You've been exposed to the same gospel. You have the same parental raising. You have all of the opportunities. You have all of the context that you share in this hypothetical situation. One person receives the gospel. One person thrives in their relationship with Christ. And the other person... And the other person does not. And that's the tale of the tape all the time. Why is it that you can witness to somebody and be so broken in your presentation and just, I mean, you have truth, right? But man, you just stumbled all over yourself. And this person's like, I need Christ. But you labor with eloquence and fluidity of speech for years talking to one person and nothing ever transpires. And you're racking your brain. You're like, why them and not them? What's, what's going on? And sometimes we're tempted to blame ourselves. Maybe I wasn't eloquent enough. Maybe I wasn't coercive enough. Maybe I wasn't persuasive enough. And don't get me wrong. Paul makes it clear. We do persuade men. We persuade men. We, we, we beg them to trust Christ. In a sense, we do coerce men. We come to them and say, listen, listen, you need Jesus. You need truth to govern your life, to rescue you from darkness, to bring you into the kingdom of his beloved son, to set you free. You need that. We beg and we plead with people. So there is a very real aspect where we do persuade, where we do coerce, where we do plead with people to come to Christ. But you and I both know that we see people that maybe have heard the gospel once and boom, the quarters drop for them. That's a Tim Keller illustration that I always go to my brain that you probably don't know, but and then these others who have been exposed to it all their life, just, nah, not interested. You're like, why? You've seen so many of the graces of our Lord. You've been shown so much kindness and nothing. It just doesn't make sense. Families grow up, and you've got some kids that trust Jesus and others that just rebel all their lives. And you're like, what's, what's, what's happening here? Same gospel, same power, share the same degree of lostness between you and I. So why does person A believe and person B rejects? It's because, I believe, person A was made to see the manifestation of God in Christ. Person B was not made to see the manifestation of God in Christ. Jesus says, listen, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Not to everybody, but to those that you gave me. In this particular case, the disciples were shown grace to see the Father through Jesus the Son. Judas walked away under the tutelage of Christ, under the teaching of the master teacher, and he walked away. You say, well, maybe he was just uh, a vessel of wrath. Point taken. I mean, you and I aren't going to be any better with the gospel than Jesus. And Judas walked away, not to mention the thousands that Jesus gave truth to that walked away during his ministry. We saw all through the gospel of John. Jesus says in John 10, this all builds up so beautifully. My sheep hear my voice. They know the voice of the shepherd, implying that those who are not his sheep do not hear the voice of the shepherd. 1 Corinthians 2.14, and I've, I've gone to these texts a lot of times. Uh, this is... Um, this is how these are used in context. So I'm not proof texting in that sense. The natural person, 1 Corinthians 2.14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's not able to understand them. 
and because they're spiritually discerned. There has to be this work of the Spirit in order for them to see the manifestation of the Father through the Son. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Until we're made to see, we can't see. I mean, that's the idea of spiritual deadness. But here's some great truths regarding those who are given, which it says here in this text. Two truths, very simply. Those given are secured because the language here in this text is a keeping language. He says a couple times they are kept. You see, God, they belonged to him. And then they're given to Christ. They're kept under the wing of God and then given to Jesus. So they're secured. They're being kept, actively kept. Also, those given will see an appointed time. None that belong to God will not belong to Jesus. None who belong to God before the foundations, none who belong to God will fall away. None. Jesus says, listen, I've not lost any of them. And the only way that you can say, well, see, someone did fall away, then you would have to be consistent and say, well, Judas must have been a Christian, and he belonged to God, and then God lost him. But we know that's not true, so the only other explanation is that Judas was never shown. He was never revealed. He never saw the display, the manifestation of the Father through the Son. He never saw those things. So there's a second truth for this intended audience and it's this, those given to Christ for salvation were first and always belonging to the Father. This text is a text about God's sovereign election, I believe. And what I do appreciate about, about this body of believers here is that we might be different. There might be some nuances in our views, but everyone has always been very respectful and patient with me. So for that, I am grateful that I don't feel like I'm walking on eggshells by saying words like election because that's a, that's a no-no word for a lot of people. It's a Bible word though, right? I, maybe some interpret it differently, but let's not, let's not nay, nay, nay. Like, so, you know, like, well, you know, like let's not, let's not shake our fingers uh, at, at this word. It is a Bible word. So this text, I believe, is a text about God's sovereign election. Don't let that word de- derail you. Jesus says, whom you gave me out of the world. This supposes or presupposes that they were in lostness, out of the world. You had them. Were they saved? Were they, did they have the righteousness of Jesus? No, they did not. But they were collected. They were gathered. They were elected by God before the foundation, just like, just like the Scripture teaches us that it wasn't for, with Esau and Jacob, it wasn't because of what either one of them had done, but according to God's good pleasure. This is written all over the chapter of Ephesians 1, and it's applied right here, and I'll show you some consistencies that we have to uphold in just a moment, looking at Paul's theology. He says, whom you gave me out of the world... And so here's the question. How do we explain how those who are saved have always belonged to Jesus and the Father? And I'll get to that, what I just, what I just said in a minute. 
This is the doctrine of election. And let me just share with you a few things that you have to reconcile. We have to be consistent in the way that we're interpreting things in this salvific context. Ephesians 1.4, we are first chosen. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That answers for me. That answers how they can be, how they can belong to God, and then God gives them to the Son. Revelation 17.8, there's a book and in its, in, its, in its contents, there are names written. The dwellers on earth, it says, whose name have not been written in this book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So there is this book, and in it are the names of life. And when were these names written? Before the foundation of the world. And we read these things, and we practice what I believe are proper hermeneutics, and we have to apply the same kind of deal to Romans 8, 29. You've, you know of this as the, as the golden chain of redemption. I understand that this is a popular go-to passage for reformed brothers and sisters, but let me just share with you, it is God's Word. So let's just look at that for a second. Verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom the foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn, that uh, he might be, sorry, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, Prototokos, that he might be the, the preeminent one, that he might be the first that he might be uh, the highest of all. That doesn't mean he was a created being. That means that he is the first, that he has preeminence. But it says, for those whom he foreknew. Now, foreknew has a couple of different ways that you can apply that. I will readily admit that one way that we can interpret foreknew is, is to know beforehand. But another way, and this has to do with the endings, this has to do with context and all of these things and Greek syntax and all that fun stuff, but... The other definition is to set affections upon or to set regard upon. So that's how you come out of the gate. You take these two definitions and you have to work to see which one applies rightly in this context. That's the name of the game. That's grammar. And so we come to a chapter like this that is salvific where we're being told over and over again about the price of sin but then the, the grace and the, the wonder of the gospel and this is what Paul says. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You see, I would apply, he set affections upon, because the same root word here, it's getting seminarian-ish, I get it, but the same root word here is also applied to Adam knowing Eve back in early Genesis. Now, clearly, there was, no, uh, there was nothing sexually explicit here that Paul's getting at. We understand what Adam knew Eve meant, but walk away from the physicality of it and think of the supernatural. Think of the, think of the love, the intimacy, the effectualness there is between Adam and Eve and the way that they knew each other. And in the same way, God is saying, this is how I knew you before the foundation of the world. Speaking of those who belong to him that he gives to Jesus. He set his affections upon, he set his regard upon them. 
But let's take, for instance, if you want to say, no, it means those he knew beforehand would choose him, would call on him. And I understand that that's a widely accepted view, and I've wrestled through that and still wrestle through things. But let me, let me just explain why that, that's kind of like a, uh, you know, a car leaving the garage with a flat tire. You just, you're, already, you're already headed for disaster, okay? So Paul's soteriology was consistent. We know that. And I believe because of that, he's not going to contradict himself in two contexts that are both salvation from the same man, okay, the same man. Paul's going to say first, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and now he's going to say those he foreknew, he predestined. Not to mention in Ephesians 1, you already have tons of election and predestination language. So it's the same kind of thing going on to a different audience. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Chose us for what? The context is salvation. There's no way around it. He chose us for salvation. Not what you had done, not what he saw you could do, not what you wanted to do, not what you failed to do, but because of his good pleasure, because of his grace, because God's design is that he reveals every attribute that he has. That's his attribute of love as well as mercy, as well as justice, and as well as wrath, which flows from justice. That's the glory of God on display. Even his wrath is glorious, right? Are we with me? Are you stuck in, are you stuck in uh, theology 101 or let's move to 103, 104 here? So Paul's soteriology was consistent. If the proper reading of foreknow in Romans 8, 29 is to know beforehand, that would mean that we would read the same, we read it the same way in Ephesians 4. The problem is that we would then be, it would then be understood to mean that God chose us on the basis of our choosing him. And I've heard some audibly accept that, yes. But do you, do you hear the, what's the word I'm looking for? Do you hear the, the logical fallacy? Do you hear the, 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 how it breaks apart? He chose you because you chose him. It becomes superfluous. You, you go over to, it becomes unnecessary. You go over to Romans 8.29, same situation. Let's apply, he foreknew. He knew that you would choose him before, and he knew that your self-destination would be coming to Christ, and therefore he predestined. It's unnecessary. It doesn't read as smoothly. It doesn't make as much sense when every other word here in this text is, is an active thing being put onto the passive agent. All this is important as it relates to belonging to God as mentioned in 17.6. We belong to God when he chose us before the foundation of the world. So nobody's arguing with the fact that we belong to God. We just have to make sense of it. We did belong to God before. But how does that play out? And let me just kind of throw out some low-hanging fruit for me, okay, as I've been thinking about this. The way that we belong to God, okay, in what capacity did we belong to God? Well, he chose us to be his own. That's good. So at that point when we're chosen before the foundation, we are marked as sheep. I have sheep that are not of this fold, speaking of the Gentiles who have not yet come to Christ. But he calls them what? He calls them sheep. He didn't say, I have goats that are, become, that are going to become sheep. There's going to be this crazy metamorphosis that takes place, and they're going to finally be mine. That's not the language that the Bible uses. They were sheep at the moment that he gathered them. His eternal decree was that you would become my sheep. Now, does that mean you are his sheep and that you are acquainted with the shepherd at that point? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
That's why the book of Acts says there is a time that's appointed that someone might be saved. Those appointed to salvation believed. So we're sheep just meandering about all the while. Here's the beauty. Here's the grace. Here's why we can all be excited about this. Even if we're, even if we're in different areas, we can all be excited that, man, there's this keeping work that the Lord is doing. He's holding us. He's maintaining us. He's sustaining us. He's keeping us, and he's bringing us to this place that finally we will be in him. And the beauty of that is nothing can happen to you when you are being kept. Now, can bad things happen? Yes. But the enemy cannot win over you. The enemy can't take you down with him. You can't be lost at the end of all things if the Lord has gathered you for himself for an appointed time that you would be in Christ. Now, I'll say this at the same time, as weird as it sounds, we belong to God, and in a sense we don't belong to Jesus, but in another sense we do belong to Jesus. We do belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus in the sense that, not salvifically, but we are reserved for Christ. I mean, to belong to God is essentially to belong to Jesus, but don't think of it in a salvific sense. Don't think of it in a sense that, hey, you're not a Christian, but you kind of are. No, no, not at all. I don't mean that. I mean that if you're marked out as a sheep and there's going to become an appointed time, you know, that, that God has reserved you, God has gathered you up, and that it's 100% that you are going to eventually be in Christ. So in that sense, you do belong to Jesus. Maybe you haven't arrived in that relationship, but you will because of the keeping, belonging power of what God has done in gathering his sheep for himself. And then we are given to Christ, and here's the other sense in which we belong to Jesus. Christ's death secures our salvation. The Spirit of God comes to apply what belongs to Christ and gives it to us, and it is applied to us when the Spirit of God regenerates us. So there's salvation. There's the other sense in which you didn't belong to Jesus. That's the language we're used to using. Oh, I belong to Christ. Do you belong to Christ? Yeah. You know, having the sense you've always belonged to him and that God is keeping you and, 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 and you will be in Christ. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Truth number three, Jesus became or becomes the eternal intercessor for all who believe. We start to see that in verse 9. We see that in, uh, in, in the latter verses where Jesus says, I don't just pray for them, I pray for all who will believe in me. We understand that Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. That's in a context where Jesus is being compared to the priest Melchizedek. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Consider the magnitude of this reality, that Jesus lives to make intercession for you. If you're looking for an opportunity to be excited about 2020, here it is. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. And I don't know if you've been blessed by having people in your life to pray for you, but it's quite remarkable. 
I was preaching at a church one time, my home church, a couple summers ago, and I had this sweet lady come up to me. She said, I've been praying for you ever since you graduated high school. I'm like, whoa. Well, the Lord's not hearing any of your prayers. No, I didn't say that. But I'm thinking, That's, that blows my mind. One of my professors in seminary who did premarital counseling for Sarah and I, uh, he told me just a couple of years ago, I pray for you and Sarah every day. And this man wages war on his knees. It's awesome. I'm like, really? And these things blow my mind. I'm the kind of guy, and this isn't narcissism, this is good sense, that I want anybody and everybody praying for me. My wife is more guarded. She's like, ah, don't burden anybody. I'm like, burden everybody. Burden them all, you know. Let's get them praying. There's going to be a few righteous ones that get up there. Let's get them all going, right? It only makes sense to me. Somebody comes up and prays for me. I'm like, thank you, thank you. You got any friends? You got any relatives? You got a dog or cat? Anybody that prays, let's get it on. Let's get these things prayed for. That's, that's, how, I, that's how I work. I, I, I ask, I, I want people praying for me. I'm asked to pray for people all the time. As a pastor, it kind of comes with the territory. Some comes up, someone comes up, pastor, will you, you know, pastor, will you please uh, pray for me? Sure. It happens all the time. And I'm, I'm happy to do that, and I'm fine to do that. But, but I'm just a man, you know. And we're called to pray, and that's great, but I'm still just a man. I had students who would ask me, hey, pray for me. I have a test coming up. I said, well, did you study? No, I'm not praying for you. <laughs> Happened all the time. They got the hint after a while. I'm like, no, you didn't study? No. We can, you can study, and we can ask the Lord to give you some recall. But you're going to be lazy. Lord, yes, I'll pray for you. Lord, help them of their laziness. Help them, Lord. They are a, a sorry waste of skin. Please help them to become a productive member of society. And these are prayers for mere humans. You know, we're, 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 we're delighted to do it. We're glorifying God and doing it. But when you pit my prayers against Jesus, are you kidding me? The Bible says the prayers of the righteous accomplish much. Maybe, maybe because I have the righteousness of Jesus, you know, the Lord responds to my prayers. I believe that's how that works. But, but, but I am not the righteous one. You understand that? That there's something about a righteous person and the righteous of Christ praying for you versus the righteous one praying for you. So what does the Bible teach us about prayer and its effectiveness? It teaches us that the prayers of the righteous accomplish much. It teaches us that belief is directly linked to the power of prayer. It teaches us that there is a correlation between praying the will of God and answered prayer. If, they, if, if the prayers of the righteous accomplish much, what do we say about Jesus? If praying the will of the Father is an effective way to pray. What does that say about the prayers of Jesus? Who always prays the will of the Father, even in the garden. Hey, if there be any other way, if your will could be this, fine. If not, whatever your will. I love the fact that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And next week, we'll dial in a little bit more to what those prayers look like. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Not dismissed, but go into a, a meeting. So, Father, we thank you for, Lord, the beauty of, of, of your word, the complexities of your word. Lord, it's, it's exciting that we could spend our entire lives mining out these truths and really scratch the surface my prayer is that you, you, you increase daily our interest in mining these truths and these principles out. Or my prayer for myself and for my family here 
is that you will make your word more and more attractive to us, Lord, that we might see with every verse, with every line, with every page and chapter, that we might see with every stroke of the pen that you are glorious and and lovely and majestic. And Lord, your wonder would apply to us in such a way that we reflect, we display, we image you in all the right ways as a result of what your word is fashioned in and through us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to shift gears here for a minute.